Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Ben, for leading us this morning. And again, happy birthday, Kirsten. Pretty sure we violated a couple fire codes by having those sparklers like they were. But hey, it's not like it's on video or anything, so we'll be all right. Uh, but thank you again for joining us this week online as we are gathering uh, this morning virtually to worship together. Hope you're all doing well, and as you're gathered around your TV or your monitor, wherever you may be, uh, thank you for joining us as we are entering into week two of our discussion on LGBT issues and the church. And as Kirsten mentioned earlier, we've been going through this series called Crucial Questions, where we've been hitting on all these questions that you've submitted to us about the Bible, about Christianity, about faith and culture, and those kinds of things. And of course, one of the questions, or one of the topics that was asked most frequently, were questions related to LGBT issues. And so we are glad, actually, to take two weeks to explore these things together. If you weren't with us last week, we looked at what we called the orthodoxy of this. In other words, we looked at the doctrine of what the Bible has to say about LGBT issues. This week, we're going to be looking at what we might call the orthopraxy. In other words, the practice of how we live this out in the church. And our question for today is, how should the church respond to LGBT issues? And I got to tell you that as we start today, I'm actually really excited to talk about this topic. I know that it is weighty, and I know that it's difficult, and I can actually feel the emotional kind of weightiness of this over the past couple of weeks as we've been going through this. But I'm really excited to be talking about it at the same time, because as we talked about last week, it's a really culturally relevant issue for us today, uh, and, and it's been that way for a while. And then secondly, as we're going through this, it's going to help us really refine our theology and refine our mission in particular today as we're talking about how we respond as the church. And I think it's, 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 so it's not one of those things where I'm looking at it like saying, oh, this is so difficult to have to go through and talk about LGBT issues in the church. I'm actually really excited about the potential that this brings to us as we get to talk about things like biblical sexuality and we get an opportunity to really renew our theology on this thing and renew the mission that God has called us to in the good news of Jesus Christ. And so even in saying that, I recognize that I may be speaking to a wide variety of people here this morning. Um, I can be, I think, you know, possibly I'm talking to people who are not connected to the church at all, and maybe you just got this link from uh, a family member or a friend who really cares about you and loves you, and you had questions about LGBT issues in the church, and so they sent this to you, and you're just tuning in. You have no idea who I am, and you're not really connected to church or North Bible Church at all. I just want to say thank you for joining us this morning. Um, but as this, this morning, as we, as we move through this, we're going to be talking a little bit more about what it means for a Christian and for the church to respond to LGBT issues. So although we'll be speaking to some of those issues that we talked about last week, I feel like last week is probably a more appropriate uh, exp explanation of what the Bible has to say about LGBT issues. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that one, I would encourage you at some point to, to, to listen to the one from last week in connection with this one, because there's a lot of things that we talked about last week that I'm going to assume that most people have already heard, and so we'll kind of go through that this week a little bit, but I'm not going to go into the depth that we did last week, okay? So as we do, I'm going to be talking more about the church. What do we as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, and in particular as North Bible Church, how should we respond to what the Bible has to say about LGBT issues and what it looks like to be the church? And I'll warn you ahead of time that it's going to seem like at times that I'm kind of dogging on the church a little bit, and you may feel like, gosh, why are you so negative about the church? And I, want to, I don't want it to come off like that, because I'm actually not trying to be negative about the church. I really want to be careful about that, because I love the church. But as part of the church, we have to realize that we are people in process. It's part of what it means to be the church, that we are people who are always growing and learning and confessing and repenting and being humbled and being transformed. In fact, I would say the day that we look at the church and say all of this is perfect and we don't have to repent anymore, we don't have to learn anymore, and there's no more humility that needs to be, is the day that the church begins to die. And so as we begin to move through this, I want us to be challenged. I want us to have open minds in terms of how we approach this. I don't want us to get defensive over these things. Instead, I want us to see how God might be stretching us and yes, calling us even to change. And as painful as that change may be sometimes, and as difficult as it may be to embrace those change, I do think as we move through this, we're going to see that some change may be necessary. And I say this as someone who is part of the church, as someone who really needs to be stretched and challenged as much as anybody else in the church as well. So, um, so since this topic can be so huge and complex and can be so emotional in a lot of ways, I really want to keep it simple and focused for us today because we don't really have time to handle all of it 
uh, this morning. And so what we're going to do, and so rather than just kind of gloss over some things and rather than just kind of like take a 30,000 foot view, I'm going to just focus on some things that are important, I think, to begin the conversation this morning. And there are some layers to this, but really what I want to do is frame the discussion from the perspective that we are familiar with here at North. In other words, we call it our mission statement. We've often referred to it as our core values. But here at North, we believe that we are called to love God, we're called to love people, and we're called to love the world. And so I want to talk about that from the framework of what that looks like in an LGBT context. In other words, how does that look, what does that look like as we love people and as we serve people and as we reach the world uh, from this topic of LGBT issues? And so to do that, I've phrased it in the following terms, which I feel like are really three callings that God has given us as the church for this time in history as we engage with the LGBT community. And it's this. Talking about it in terms of three callings this morning. The first calling is this, a story to live. Secondly, a people to love. And third, a mission to lead. And so we're going to approach it from those three callings that God has given us as the church in relationship to the LGBT community and LGBT issues. So the first one then, our first calling is a story to live. You know, we talked last week about the story that we have been given in Scripture. When we talk about story, that's what we're talking about here this morning. The, the biblical story, the one true story of God, God's Word to us. And we looked at the fact that what Scripture tells us is that sexuality, no matter who we are, whether we're heterosexual or gay, whatever identity or orientation we may have, is broken. And it's broken because of sin. It's broken because of our broken fellowship with God. And although God designed sex, he invented sex, and he invented it for as a gift and a blessing to us, that because of sin, it has been broken. And we all feel that no matter who we are, no matter what orientation we have, in different ways. And it's expressed in different ways as a result. So we have that story, but we also have the story that we're living in our culture. And the story about sexuality that we are living today in our culture, especially in the Western world, is a story that is broken. And I don't think that's a shock to, to anyone. If you really look at it, I think we all feel it and we all see it in different ways. In large measure, it is the result actually of the sexual revolution of the 1960s that promised freedom through free sexual expression. And I think as we look at it almost two generations later, what we see is that instead of it freeing us, it has bound us to our sexuality. And, the, and it's had the effect of separating sex from commitment and relationship and making sex more about self-gratification and as a result has turned people into commodities that provide sexual gratification for us rather than people created in the image of God for whom we are designed to have relationship with. And so as a result, sex has become more transactional than it has relational. And so we see pornography and the hookup culture being rampant everywhere. And not only that, but sex and sexual attraction has become an idol and an identity in our culture. So that we were more defined by who we're sexually attracted to or what our sexual orientation may be than almost anything else in our culture. It's become an identity for us. And look, God created those things to be a part of who we are, but they're certainly not meant to be our ultimate identity. And so this sexual revolution, really, that promised freedom instead was promoted, was, was promoted a lie that has led us into sexual bondage in our culture. And we got bound up in our own sexuality, and now we live in a world where not only sexuality is broken in us, but sexuality all around us is broken. And I believe the only place that we can turn to to make it whole again is to turn to the God who created sex in the first place. And last week we talked about sexuality as a part of our discipleship in following Jesus. And that the Bible tells us that true sexuality is supposed to look like the way that God created it all. And this comes back again to that story that we've all been called to live, the story of Scripture with the gospel right at the center. We are people who believe as the church and live out the good news in every area of life, even in terms of our sexuality. Now, Julie Slattery, who is a clinical psychologist and also a Christian, I think explains it well. When we're kind of looking about what this looks like for us to kind of put back together our sexuality, she actually compares it to a box of Legos. And she says, you know, when you, buy a, when you buy a set of Legos, what you see on the outside of that Lego box is a picture of what the ultimate thing is supposed to look like that you're building, right? And she used the example of a Batmobile. So you get a Lego box, and on the outside of the box is a picture of the Batmobile. But when you open up the box, what you open up to the first time is not a fully fully built Batmobile. In fact, all you get are a bunch of pieces that don't seemingly go together at all. But what you've got to do over time is build those pieces into what 
the display looks like on the outside of the box, or what the picture looks like on the outside of the box. And she says, this is a lot like sexuality for all of us as human beings. Again, no matter what orientation we come from, is that we have to, we, our sexuality is broken, and like these pieces that need to be put back together, it's walking with God to understand how those pieces fit together so that we can, in the end, have a picture that looks more like the picture on the outside of the box. And look, God has a design for us, and God has a design for sexuality. And it's not all of who we are, but it's a big part of who we are created as human beings, and it's a big part of our discipleship. You may notice that we see all over Scripture warnings against sexual immorality, that we live the way that God has designed because it has such an impact and profound effect on who we are as human beings. One of those places is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it starts in verse 3. And notice that Paul even says, this is the will of God. He talks about sanctification, and then he immediately jumps into this aspect of the centrality of our sexuality. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in, the passionate, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now here's something important to realize, I think, as we look at this, is that there is obviously a standard of sexual morality that God, a plan and a design that God has set out for us. Otherwise, there would be no such thing as sexual immorality, right? If everything was permissible and if there was no sexual morals, then there would be no, thing, no such thing as sexual immorality. But Paul calls out what sexual immorality is, which tells us that there is a design and a purpose and guidelines that God has laid out for what sexual uh, ethics are supposed to look like. Now, he gets to this place, though, where he says the purpose of all of this, no matter who we are, and you see it in verse 4, you see it in verse 7, is holiness. That word holiness means to be set apart for the design for which God has created us and God has called us to live. And when it comes to sexual ethics, though, most of us, even as Christians, automatically ask, what should I do or what should I not do? If you've ever been in youth ministry before in a church, you know the high schoolers are always asking, what can I do with my girlfriend or boyfriend? Is it okay for me to do this? Is it okay for me to do that? And I think for a lot of us, that's what we naturally just jump to, the behavior, the ethics. But what this is pointing us to is the question of who we are becoming and how we are being formed. And that those things that we participate in actually causes us to be formed in a certain way because it's so much a part of who we are created to be in God's image. Now, the question then is, who am I becoming and what yoke am I taking on? Last week, I referenced the passage from Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus invites us to take on his yoke. A yoke which he says is gentle and light, and when we do, we will find rest for our souls. You know, during Jesus' time, a yoke was used to describe a rabbi's teaching. And it was more than just rules and regulations and directives and, and, and ethics for behavior. In fact, to take on the yoke of a rabbi was actually to say, I want to live like this rabbi. I want to be like this person. And so when, when a follower followed a rabbi, that person not only followed that rabbi into their public teachings and their public uh, behavior, but also followed the rabbi into their private behavior. So inside their homes, a follower would follow them into their homes to see how they loved their kids and raised their kids and how they loved and treated their wives. In some traditions, they even said that the follower would follow the rabbi into the bathroom. I'm not really sure what you learn in that environment, but I think the point is clear is that what, what this is meant to represent is that in every aspect, in every way, we are meant to be like the rabbi. And Jesus uses this analogy to say, look, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Become like me. And so the question we should be asking related to this is, am I becoming more free in loving God and loving my neighbor? Am I being more bound? When it comes to LGBT sexuality and discipleship, then, it's not about changing orientation as if that were the end goal. Although some people do change their orientation when they come to Jesus, we have stories of that. The point of it all is not about sexuality, it's about following Jesus. I'll remind you of the Jackie Hill Perry quote that I referred to last week. She says this, God is not calling gay people to be straight. God is calling gay people to be holy. 
So when it comes to sex, same-sex attraction, it's not about praying the gay away or any kind of other conversion therapy. It's about a same-sex attracted pers- Christian learning what every other person is learning. How do I submit this orientation to God? That God didn't make a mistake when he created me, but he called me for a purpose to set me apart, to show what it looks like to follow Jesus as a same-sex attracted Christian. And as the church, we should welcome, them, welcome that Uh, perspective and that lifestyle in as a part of the body in the story of scripture following jesus together as a people to love which brings us to our next calling a people to love i'll admit it i I stole this phrase and much of what i'm going to say in this section from preston sprinkle i mentioned him last week but he is an author and a a speaker and a researcher on these issues of lgbt and the church Um, I would recommend you take a look at his stuff. I think Kirsten sent out some of the material to community group leaders, and so if you're in a community group, maybe you're reviewing this stuff already. Um, But this phrase of people to love is just too good. I couldn't change it. It's just a great phrase to use, so I'm going to borrow it from him and then some of this stuff that he uses as well. But Preston, one of the things Preston does is he cites a well-known Andrew Marin survey that was done recently to study the religious backgrounds of LGBT people in the United States. And I think think it's going to be eye-opening for you to see these stats. It was for me. When I saw these numbers, I couldn't believe it. It was totally different than what I anticipated. But what he found out from his study was pretty amazing, at least to me. And there'll be some infographics on the screen that you'll be able to see as you follow along with this. But here are some really kind of eye-opening numbers. First of all, just to begin, just to give us perspective, there are 22.4 million LGBT people in the United States right now, give or take. But 86% of the LGBT community in the United States grew up in the church. When you compare that to only 76% of the general population, you see that, more, you see that 10% more of the LGBT community than just the general population actually grew up in the church. Almost 9 out of 10 LGBT people have a background in growing up in church. But 54% of those left the church as adults after they turned 18. Now, of those who leave the church, here are some of the reasons that LGBT people left versus reasons why the general U.S. population left. You can see that on your screen right now. But amazingly, and here's an amazing statistic, only 3% of LGBT people said they left the church because of the church's traditional view of marriage and sexuality. Only 3%. So that means 97% left for other reasons, and these are largely relational reasons. Here's a sampling of what they said. 18% said they did not feel safe in the church that they grew up in anymore once they came out as gay. 14% said that they experienced a relational disconnect with leaders, which led them to leave the church. 13% said there was not congruence between teaching and practice in what they saw in their church. 12% said that there was a general unwillingness to dialogue about these issues once uh, this person came out as gay, and 9% were just flat kicked out of their church once they came out as gay or LGBT. Now, here's the big takeaway for me as I look at these numbers. There's a lot in this, but 76% of LGBT people who left the church say they would consider returning to the church compared to just 9% of the general population who has left the church. Look at that. That's an astounding number. 9% of the general population who have left the church would consider it. 76% of LGBT people who left the church would consider coming back. And 92% would not require their change, would not require their church, excuse me, to change their views on sexuality and marriage for them to return to church. Now, this is what I want to concentrate on. Three out of four LGBT people who left the church would consider coming back. And look, I don't know the stories of each of these people, but it seems like they still like Jesus and they still like the church and they even like the idea of the church. So what is the problem? Well, as the church, I think we've, we have to come to terms with the fact that something that we have done has caused us to lose the LGBT community. And I think in a lot of ways we might naturally just say, well, it's because they have felt convicted by Scripture and, and so they left the church. Well, maybe... But if these stats are to be believed, that's only 3% of the people who actually left, and 76% are willing to come back. So maybe that's the case, but maybe it's how we communicate Scripture, or maybe it's how we understand Scripture, or maybe it's our general posture. But I want to give you, it's easy to look at numbers and those kinds of things. What I want to do is hear from a few people who have experienced this. We're going to hear from their words. I've got a few quotes from 
three people, three young adults who have been in the church, grew up in the church, came out as LGBT, and left the church as a result, or are kind of just hanging on, maybe, as a result. young man by the name of Drew Harper says this, to be gay in the American evangelical church is to be dead. You are an outcast, a diseased person. Leslie Hudson, after hearing a sermon about the gay community being an abomination, said, I was ashamed that I was such an abomination to the God I adored. And then finally, Tasha, a 21-year-old lesbian in the church, said this, all I, wanted to feel, all I wanted was to feel loved by those in the church I grew up with. Love is giving me the time to be with you to figure this out together. If you let any people read this, tell them that I don't have to be right to feel loved. I have to be dignified in our disagreement. Look again, most of the people in the LGBT community in the U.S. today have been raised in the Christian church. And at some point, they decided church didn't work out for them. In many cases, it was because they, once they came out, they were avoided, or, they, or even worse, they were kicked out of the church, or they were told to find another place to go to church. And so many of them were shamed and mocked and abandoned over this past generation and left alone by the people they grew up with in church, whom they were told was their church community and their church family and the people who loved them. And as a result, some have even become depressed or suicidal, and most have had to leave the church to find any semblance of loving community. And I think this all leads us to the realization that it's not necessarily our theology in every case that leads LGBT people away from the church. It has too often been our posture. I think more than a posture of grace and mercy and love According to the gospel, so many times our posture has been a posture of judgment and fear and even disdain. And we talked about this last week, but the place where this conversation needs to start is with all of us with our hearts bowed before the cross in absolute need of God's grace no matter who we are. And no matter how far we have to get our hearts down, if we have to get our faces in the dirt, so to speak, before the cross to make sure that we get lower so that we can't look down on anybody else, that's where we need to be to begin this conversation. And too many times in the church, the discussion starts with these behaviors of sin. And when that happens, there is naturally going to be things like judgment and fear and disdain. And the church often says, love the sinner and hate the sin, which at its heart is an attempt to love a person with the grace and mercy that Jesus has shown us. But a funny thing happens when it comes to extending grace sometimes. We tend to be much more willing to extend grace to people who sin like us. It's human nature in a lot of ways that if I could see myself doing that sin, then I'm much more compassionate and gracious towards someone who does the same sin. But if it's a sin that I could never see myself doing, my grace is often limited, and it limits according to the reference of that behavior. So in other words, my grace can extend all the way to that point, but doesn't go any further. And what practically happens is that so many times there are those in the church who have never had an issue with same-sex attraction or struggled with gender dysphoria or trans issues, and then they brush up against the LGBT community, and their sin is all that we can see, and we forget that there is a person who is loved and created in the image of God, and whom God has called for holiness in who they are and who they've been designed to be. Preston Sprinkle says, we can get the Bible right, but if we get love wrong, we're wrong. So instead of love the sinner, hate the sin, how about love the sinner, hate our own sin, and let's follow Jesus together? Now, when we get to this point, I sometimes hear people say, all right, love, love, love. We get it. We get it. We hear you talking about love, but where does that stop? I mean, when is it enough? Where do we draw the line? Well, Peter once asked Jesus a similar question about extending grace and love. You may know this. It's in Matthew chapter 18. In verse 21, it says this. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. You may know in other translations it says seven times, seven times. The point is that Jesus is saying is, look, Peter is trying to put a limit on where the grace and love is extended towards others. And Jesus says, look, there is no limit. The point of it, Peter, is that there is no limit to this love and grace is that you're to love in the same way that God in Christ loves you. And where does that end? It doesn't. And the place that we want to arrive at then is people who, like Jesus, have a biblical ethic about sexuality, but people like Jesus who are also winsome and welcoming and loving towards those who want to experience the love and grace that Jesus gives. 
And I probably don't need to tell you that that's a difficult thing to do. To hold that tension between grace and truth is a really difficult thing. But that is our sweet spot because that is where Jesus resides. I think a place like Galatians 6 helps us see this a little bit more clearly. It says in Galatians 6 verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I think the language of this passage paints a picture, really, of someone who is going on a journey and has a burden on his shoulders. And that how, how essential it is for another person to join him on that journey to help carry that burden with him. It's a, it's a, it's a weight that's designed to be carried by multiple people. Have you ever picked up one of those boxes and on the side of it it says team lift because it's like a heavy piece of furniture or it's a heavy piece of electronic or something? Right? This, that's kind of what this is all about is that in church we team lift one another's burdens. No burden is meant to be carried on its own. Whatever that sin is, whatever that transgression is, everything is meant to be carried together in community. And all of us get caught up in transgressions as Galatians 6 says. But all of us are called to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing each other's burdens at the same time, which was Jesus' point with Peter, which is the point of Scripture saying that you're to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. And this is why it starts with humility. Notice verse 3 in Galatians chapter 6 says, anyone who thinks he is something when he is really nothing is deceived. That's a reference to humility, the recognizing again that the grace of Jesus, we have no claim on it. And so all of us are in a place where we are nothing without the grace of God. And this is the basis of for church community, because you cannot have solid, Jesus-honoring, bearing one another's burdens relationships without humility, because it takes a willingness to bear each other's burdens. Sooner or later, you're going to sin against somebody and hurt them, and they're going to sin against you and hurt you, and somebody's going to sin in a way that you don't understand. But if that sin becomes the end and you can't forgive, that relationship will die. In a community where we're going to walk together bearing one another's burdens, no matter what those burdens may be, that's what the community of God looks like. It's because Jesus took the burden of sin, every sin, all sin, not just my sin, not just your sin, but all sins to the cross once and for all. So the worst thing we could do in this is see this as a quote-unquote gay sin problem. Instead, we're to see this as how do we live as people in need of God's grace, regardless of whether we are straight, gay, trans, and how do we walk together with Jesus bearing one another's burdens? So can a man who struggles with same-sex attraction walk into our men's Bible study on Thursday morning and have other brothers listen to him as he shares about his same-sex attractions and temptations and struggles and, yes, maybe even behaviors? And can he sit next to a guy who just admitted that he struggles with a little bit of anger or pride or jealousy? And can both of those brothers be looked at and say, we're going to pray for you and we're going to bear your burdens together as brothers? Can we reside in the messy middle and love people feeling the tension of what that looks like, because that is where Jesus is. So before we move on to our third calling this morning, I want to say a couple of things to any LGBT people who might, be, who might be watching this or hearing this this morning. First of all, I want to say on behalf of the church, we are sorry. As the church of Jesus, we've been called to love you and to show grace and mercy and hospitality, and we have not done that in the way that Jesus would have. We are sorry for the times that we've been unloving and downright hateful. When we've treated you like less than a person who is wonderfully and fearfully made by the hand of the God who we worship and the, in the image of the God who we love. And secondly, I would also ask you to consider how you can love people in the church. Chances are you have a relative or a friend or you still have connections to the church in some way. As we talked about, most LGBT people have some connection to the church. And if someone sent you this link or someone is engaging with you about the Christian faith and the Bible and your sexuality, please know that they're doing it out of love. Now, oftentimes it can be clumsy and maybe even offensive in the way that they do it, but know that their intentions are to love you. Please give them the benefit of the doubt and help them as they kind of stumble through learning how to love you in this. And I would invite you to join us in the discussion about these issues that we want to welcome you as the same kind of people who are walking on a journey with us, bearing burdens together. And so, yes, it starts with love, but how do we love people? Well, that brings us to our third calling, which is a mission to lead. 
And yes, I am saying lead on this because for far too long as the church, we've sat back as the church and instead of engaging and instead of leading a mission, we have, we have sat, sat back and instead of moving the gospel forward in the LGBT community, we have sat back and allowed it to be a non-issue for us. And so we're not able to sit back anymore. That ship has sailed. We can't just sit back and say, okay, all LGBT people, we love you. Come, you know where to find us and come back to church. That ship has sailed, and if we do that, we'll literally be waiting until Jesus comes back for that to happen. Instead, we have to lead forward into a mission that seeks out gracious discussion and open conversation with LGBT people. Again, Preston Sprinkle points out a significant example of this kind of lead-forward mission that was, that was led by Jesus during his, his earthly ministry. And in, in, the, in the many examples in which Jesus responded to those who were the disenfranchised by the religious people of the day, he named specifically guys like Zacchaeus, the, the tax collector, the prostitutes, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, all who were scandalous figures from a religious standpoint. And not even just because of their sin, but also in Zacchaeus' example, the agendas that he supported and the agendas that he was a part of. Being a Roman tax collector, he was the worst of all the sinners. Worse than the prostitutes, worse than the adulterers. But in each case, what, is, what Sprinkle points out is that Jesus sought these people out deliberately. He led into mission. If you remember in the case of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, again, this is the tax collector, a man who is hated more than anybody, not just by the religious people, but by everybody. And there's such a crowd that's around Jesus in the public square there that Zacchaeus can't see Jesus, so he climbs a tree to be able to see him. And Jesus points out in the middle of that crowd and says to Zacchaeus, I must go to your house tonight. And you may know that in that time, going to somebody's house to have dinner with them was more than just having dinner with them. It was a way of saying, I am with you and I am joining myself with you in relationship. And Jesus says, I must go. I must go. You do a little study into that word, it, it actually has the force of saying, I have to do it for this reason, because you are an ostracized, disenfranchised person from the religious establishment. I have to show what my grace and this mission is designed to do. Now, of course, that's a well-known story from Jesus' ministry, but I actually have a modern-day Zacchaeus-style story for you this morning. And it comes from the life of a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield, uh, if you don't know who Rosaria Butterfield is, she is a remarkable woman with an amazing story of God's grace in her life. I would suggest you find all of her books and blogs on, and podcasts online and read them all, listen to everything she's done, because it's fantastic. But her story is, is really unusual, and it is really a, an amazing story of God's miraculous movement in her life and how the church can be a part of this. When Rosaria was younger, she was involved in, lesbian, in a lesbian sexually active life for several years of her early adulthood. She lived with a lesbian partner whom she met in college, and then when, she graduated, when they graduated from college in Ohio, they moved to New York City together. And she was hired by uh, Syracuse University at that time as a professor and a scholar at the university. And she says at that time she taught and she believed that actually um, lesbian sex gay sex was actually more pure and enlightened than heterosexual sex. And so at the time, as she was a professor at Syracuse University, she taught English and women's studies classes, but her specialty was in queer theory, a subset of academic di discipline that focused mainly on LGBT issues. And during her time at Syracuse, she was actually the lead advisor to all of the LGBT student groups on campus, and then became one of the most uh, significant LGBT and AIDS activists in the early movement in the universities throughout the U.S. But it was during this time that she decided that she would write a book about the hatred of the religious right in America. That was the topic of her book. So as a part of her research, she began reading the Bible. And she says she read the Bible a couple of times, and she was struck by the depth of it. She had grown up Catholic, and so she was familiar with some of the things that the Bible said, but reading through it really struck her in terms of the, the variance in literature and those kinds of things, so she was kind of moved by it. At the same time, she didn't believe it was God's Word. But as part of this research, and, and what happened as she was writing her book, is that Promise Keepers had a rally there at Syracuse University, and so she decided to write an article in the local paper about the hatred of the religious right and the Promise Keepers movement together. And she said that she received so many hate mail letters as a result of that article that she had to start a file where she would put all of these letters. But there was one letter that she received from a local pastor that as she read it and she was about to put it in the hate mail pile, she realized it was different from all the others. 
It was gracious in tone, and although it challenged her presuppositions, the man named Ken Smith, who was a pastor there, was open to suggestions and was open to discussion. And so she says at the time that I couldn't put it in my hate mail file, and so I just had to leave it on my desk. And for two weeks, it sat there. As it sat there for two weeks, she read it over and over again. And as part of that letter, at the end, Ken and his wife invited Rosaria to dinner at his house to discuss these issues. And so she finally took him up on his offer, more, as she says, as an opportunity to do more research on her book about the hatred of the religious right. But as she showed up for that meeting, she said that I was blown away by what Ken and his wife said and how they received me. They showed me genuine hospitality and they loved me. And week after week, because this was something that started as one meeting and became week after week, we talked openly about sexuality and politics and even exchanged books to read with one another. And she says this, it took two years of them bringing the church to me at that dining room table for me to hear and see the gospel of Jesus. And she said, as she met more Christians in connection with Ken and his wife, those sharp edges of scripture and Christian belief started to, started to soften. And when she came across a place like Romans chapter 1, 24 through 28, which you may know is one of those quote-unquote clobber passages or one of those really, really difficult passages to, to get a hold of if you're, if you're dealing with same-sex issues and sexual immorality in general, she actually says it's, these verses contain the most frightening words in Scripture for anyone who is struggling with sexual sin. It was that passage which the Lord used to bring her to repentance. And she said, as I read this, I saw this process of the, when we reject the guidance and wisdom of God, God allows us to pursue our own lusts. And as we pursue our own lusts, we give ourselves over to the foolishness of this world as we're separated from God. And if we can't get blessing from God, we will demand it from the world. And then we will approve of those who do the exact same thing. And she said, I was struck because that described my life to a T. She said, in that moment, the conclusion led her to a conversion experience with God. And I want to read her quote, her own words about what this conversion experience was like. She said this, I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. I viscerally felt the living presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed present and alive, and I knew that I was not alone in my room. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And if he was real and I was his, I prayed that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin that at the time didn't actually feel like sin at all. It felt like life, plain and simple. I prayed that if my life was to actually, what was actually his life, that he would take it back and that he would make it what he wanted it to be. I asked him to take it all my sexuality, my profession, my community, my tastes, my books, and my tomorrows. And I learned the first rule of repentance, that repentance requires greater intimacy with God than intimacy with our sin. Now that's a miraculous story of salvation and transformation. But notice a couple things she says here. I repented of a sin that I didn't even know was a sin at the time. In fact, it felt like just life to me. And the, and the last phrase there is just so powerful. Repentance requires greater intimacy with God than intimacy with our own sin. And look, I think a story like this, we look and we say, wow, because only God can do something like this. But I also say at the same time, you know, the people whom God used in Rosaria's life to soften her heart to the gospel, to the place where she was then ready to hear what God's word had to say, played a huge role in that process as well. They didn't convince her to convert, to believe in Jesus, but at the same time, they played a role in that. And at the same time, for us, as people who are on mission, a mission to lead, it's the same calling that we have, that whatever, God, whatever way God may use us, whatever way in which he might show his grace and mercy to those who need to know who Jesus is, whatever way in which they might hear the good news through how we live, is how we are called to live, a mission to lead. And so, as we finish, I want to tie all these things together, which is four directives for us. And when I say all these things, I'm talking about everything we've talked about today, including some of the things we've talked about last week. And here's four directives, right? Because it's one thing to love, but what does it look like for us to really get handles on this? What does it look like for us to love in action? Number one, I think we need to, by the way, these are press, part Preston Sprinkle, part me kind of things, so it's, I want to give him credit for this as well. But number one is, Seek to understand before you refute. Again, if we fail to love, 
no matter what scripture passage we're quoting, no matter what truth we're, 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 we're spewing out, whatever, whatever we're saying, if we forget to love, we are wrong. In Rosaria's story, she, she had read the Bible all her life. But it wasn't until a Christian really sat down and talked with her and treated her like a human being and treated her like someone whom God loves that those words really softened in her heart from the Bible. And when our immediate reaction is just to refute someone and refute their ideas and not to understand someone, the wall on both sides of that discussion and that relationship will go up. And then you aren't really, and we aren't really in a position to understand another person if we aren't ready to see another perspective. So don't just say in conversations with LGBT people, well, this is what the Bible says. Many LGBT people already know what the Bible says, right? Nine, uh, nine out of ten almost grew up in the church. But instead, ask questions like, how do you read the Bible and come to the conclusion that you do? Help me understand that. Or how do you come to that place of understanding your sexuality and your identity? And then really listen to a human being who is dealing with this. Secondly, listen intentionally and humbly to those who identify as LGBT people. I think people is a key word here. We see LGBT and we automatically think an agenda or we think something else. But this is people. Those stats that we, that we, that we showed you earlier are people. And this is similar to the first one that we just talked about, but this is more personal. Humanize and honor people whom you may disagree with. For some of us, this means you're going to actually have to meet some LGBT people or at least engage with them, right? That person who's like your neighbor that you know is gay that you don't want to talk to and you've kind of avoided, go talk to them. Open discussion. The person who you work with or another friend or family member, engage and have a conversation. You have to lead into the mission and not just as a project, but as a person whom God loves. And understand that for many of us, this is not the default position for us, but if you listen intentionally and really try to understand someone's experience humbly and incarnationally, you can enter into their world and perspective. And again, thinking to how much of a role hospitality played in Rosaria's story was central to how God led her to a place of repentance. It was kindness over a long period of time of conversations and open discussions and hospitality that allowed her to be valued by people who loved Jesus, which led her to believe that she could be valued and loved by Jesus as well. Number three, the discussion should not primarily be about inclusion versus exclusion. I think this is a big one. I think a lot of the reasons why we talk about inclusion and exclusion is because fear leads us to protect what we have. And so as a result, um, as a result we, we, we get fearful of maybe people or ideas that are foreign or dangerous. And the so-called culture wars have not helped with this. In fact, the whole idea of a culture war is, not, it, it, it is, really, is really hurting our perspective on this. Because the imagery of war creates a militant response where there is one side who is the enemy that must be destroyed. And instead, what we are called to do is a mission of reconciliation. We are called to be ministers of reconciliation, not warriors who defeat other people in a cultural battle. And when we hear LGBT and gay agenda, we often get fearful. Now let me be clear, I believe there is a political LGBT agenda, and it is powerful, but it doesn't contain every person who is LGBT. And even then, if we capitulate to fear and allow it to drive us to hate the people whom God has created in his image and to treat them as enemies, forget about the culture war. We've lost the mission of the gospel in the world. And personally, I'm less concerned about losing a culture war than I am about losing the mission of the church. Look, this culture is temporary. It's here one day, it'll be gone someday. It might be gone with the next generation. But the kingdom of God and the people who are redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ are eternal. And so if we are more concerned about preserving this world that is passing away, we will totally miss this because we'll be too afraid to engage the mission of Jesus. Because to love in this way means that there is too much to lose in this world. Look, I know that as Christians, we like to talk about the faith over fear stuff and challenge each other, but I will say this. When it comes to having faith over fear, we need to be ready to have faith over those things that cause us to fear people so that we don't love them. And what that looks like is, I'm going to have to sacrificially love somebody, and so that may cause me to lose some things in this. I can't be afraid to lose those things because I've been called to sacrificially love those who need to know Jesus. And number four, and final, 
Unbiblical expectations of marriage and sexuality hinder both sides of the conversation. We talked about this last week. We talked about it a little bit this morning. But sex and marriage have become such an idol in our culture that we have basically gotten to the point outside the church where if you are not enjoying a sexually active life with many different partners, the world looks at you and asks, how can you, how can you even be happy? How can you even be enjoying life if you're not sexually fulfilled? And if you're, not, if you're not sleeping with a bunch of people all the time, then you can't be sexually fulfilled. So that gives an identity. In the traditional church, more than sex, we have made marriage and raising kids an idol. Subtly communicating, you haven't really made it until you've gotten married and had kids. The problem with that is that it doesn't provide an opportunity in our church community for people who have decided to live a celibate life or people who have been called to singleness, to be a part of the body. Remember, Jesus and Paul were both single at a time where marriage and family were idolized. And it's important to realize that singleness is a blessing in and of itself and that even has its own unique blessing and purpose and calling. In fact, Paul said, in many ways, it's preferable to remain single if you can, and especially if that's your calling. So it should be said at this point also that there's a wide range of what it means to be male and female in the Bible. And our current stereotypes of masculinity and femininity in the American church have done a lot to harm those examples. For example, King David, who's often talked about in men's Bible studies, was also someone who was a dancer, a harpist, and a poet. You don't often hear that. You hear David's a warrior and he's a king, but he's a harpist and a poet and a dancer. And some of the things that David David did in Scripture, I'm sure would get him branded with certain kinds of monikers today in some American churches. Remember Kevin DeYoung, I quoted this a few weeks ago. He says, look, men and women in Scripture express masculinity and femininity in a wonderful diversity of ways. But we do still have the binary categories of men and women. Here's the thing. Part of the reason why some LGBT people or just gender dysphoric people have felt so unwelcome by the church is that our binary categories have been so narrow in their understanding and acceptance and they're not biblical. What we need to realize is that a same-sex attracted man who may be even a little flamboyant can be interested in cooking and arts and dancing rather than hunting and sports and fixing cars and still be a Christian man seeking Jesus together with other men. So those are four things, again, just scratching the surface of this discussion. This is not meant to be a comprehensive examination and, 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 and plan and mission and even discussion for how we're to move forward. But I hope that in these past two weeks, we have had the opportunity to start this discussion that we can continue going forward. I think as we talk about things like discipleship and community and mission, I'm praying this will be a conversation that will continue. And I really believe that this is one of those issues for us that's a litmus test about how well we are actually living the story of Scripture, how well we are loving people, and certainly how well we are leading into mission in the world. And so this morning, I want to I close by praying in the same way that we began. Recognizing that as people who are in process, as a church, as individual Christians, we are people who are continually changing, learning, and repenting. And as we do, I want to pray that the Lord would open our eyes to see what this mission looks like for this time and for this place here at North Bible Church. So would you join me in praying this morning? We want to invite the band to join us. Yeah, absolutely. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning recognizing that your grace and mercy has been given to us for a reason. It's because we need it. As we bow our hearts before the cross, face down as low as we can get, realizing that it is only your grace that sets us free. It is only your mercy that allows for sin to be forgiven and that it is all determined by your love. We stand as people who need, who are in desperate need of you. Desperate need of what you do, and Father, as part of that, we come to you knowing that repentance is a lifestyle, that learning from you, Jesus, as you have said, take on my yoke and learn from me, that's a lifelong process of following you. And so, Lord, we are open to what you have to teach us. We want you to show us what it looks like to be a church that is faithful As we've talked about, Lord, grace and truth in our minds sometimes is a very difficult thing to reconcile. But Lord Jesus, you live in that space comfortably. And so we ask you, Lord, by your Spirit that you would help us to see what that looks like and that you would draw us further into the presence of Jesus, that we might look like him, that we might represent him, that we might speak like him into every area of life and in every 
acquaintance and friend and family member that we come across. And we are honest, Lord, we are struggling with what it means to understand the church and LGBT issues. For a lot of us, it's like we just don't know what it looks like. And so we ask for your wisdom. I pray for those who are listening and who are a part of, uh, of worshiping with us here this morning, um, who are in the LGBT community or who are struggling with some of these issues and not really knowing what to make of it. Lord, I pray that your presence would be felt and Lord, that they would seek you for understanding that you have given them a richer and more fuller identity than just an orientation and just who they're attracted to. Because our world lies to us the evil one lies to us in so many ways. And Lord, we have been deceived about a great many things. And so we ask, Lord, that you give us wisdom and understanding. Open our hearts and open our minds and transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And may your church look like the way that you want it to look like. May it be a redeeming community where we walk side by side, bearing one another's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ that has been given to us. And by your grace and mercy, May we see real transformation happen among us as we press on towards the goal of knowing Jesus Christ and making him known. We pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you again for joining us this morning. I want to remind you, just as Kirsten said earlier, our schedule for August will be, at this point, online only for Sunday morning worship services. And so um, be mindful of that. Of course, if things change, it's, August is a long month. There's five Sundays in the month. And so if things change, we may be able to um, meet in person sooner than that. So continue to be in prayer for the health of people in our state and also, you know, for the opportunity to meet again as soon as we can because we're missing you as much as you guys are missing us or probably more so. And so we want to see that day come sooner rather than later. Um, but for the month of August, and we're going to continue into our Crucial Questions series. We have several more questions that have not been answered. And so look forward to that over the next five weeks. And then hopefully when we have a chance to meet again, we'll be getting into a new sermon series. And we'll announce that here in just a few weeks. So have a great week. Again, thanks for joining us this week. And go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.